If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. And as Pastor Hiro has already read, this is the passage that we'll be in. And then eventually we'll get into John chapter 3, uh, verses 14 and 15. I want to tell you uh, a story or a circumstance from my childhood as I was growing up. Uh, when I was in middle school, um, I had to go for an eyesight check. How many of you ever been to an eye, eye exam? Raise your hand. All right, many of you have. Some of you didn't raise your hand. Um, strange, seeing that you have glasses on, but that's okay. I'm not going to judge this morning. Um, in fact, I went to the, uh, the eye doctor and I saw that, uh, you know, I wasn't having a difficulty seeing. And he said, hey, let's, let's get your eyes checked. And so they eventually did the exam and he discovered that my eyesight was 2,700. Um, that means what someone sees at uh, 20 feet with perfect vision, it appears that it's 700 feet away for me. Uh, how did I even get through like, like middle school and elementary? I don't know. But um, I had terrible vision. And, and the way the doctor determined that is he put this optical thing next to my face. And I looked and peered through these two holes and he would change lenses in this device. Maybe you've been there. And he'll say something like this. Uh, which option looks clearer? Option one or option two? They always have this like super methodical way of saying it. Option three or option four? And you're supposed to say, well, option one looks better. Option four looks better. A or B. But before long, as he was doing this, he was adjusting the lenses. It actually started to improve my vision. And so what I was looking at on the wall became clear. The fuzziness started to go away. The, the ability for me to have crisp lines on the letters uh, was there. And so he gave me my glasses. And that day I walked out with a pair of glasses and a pair of rec specs. And as I played baseball and I could see the chalkboard at school. And actually, it was transformational. At times, our eyesight as Christians can become woefully out of focus. In fact, in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, we learn that if godly characteristics aren't abounding in our lives, Peter actually describes us as being nearsighted. He says it, it, the idea is the meaning that we've forgotten that we've been cleansed from our former sins. And so the focus of our spiritual eyesight matters. Actually, what we are beholding as Christians really matters. And this morning, we will see that the cross of Christ must be the lens that we see all of life through. And the big, the sentence, the, the brief idea I want you to, to go away with, what I've been thinking about this week is, by faith, look to the cross and live. 
by faith, look to the cross and live. And this morning, we'll understand the background of the story. We will look at four observations from the text, look at three Christ connections, and then we'll have two broad applications for our lives today. So let me give you that quick overview of how we got to this text. Well, the first, this, 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 uh, the book of Numbers is really about two generations. The first generation is the one that was delivered out of Egypt. They um, saw the incredible work of God by sending the 10 plagues and how God divided the Red Sea and, and they led them to safety. God then brought the people to Mount Sinai where the people received the Ten Commandments. And this is where God entered into a covenant with them. And he said, you're my chosen people. I will be your God and you will be my people. The covenant was quickly broken when Aaron decided to construct a golden calf. But the Lord in his grace and mercy provided a way for, uh, for God, for him to dwell with his people. And he gave the instructions of the tabernacle. And so in the book of Numbers, the first 10 chapters actually take place at Mount Sinai. And there's a couple things that happen. First of all, there's a census that's taken as the people prepare for battle. As they're about to journey in the promised land, there was the reality. They needed to know who could fight and who couldn't. And then they organized the camp. They organized the camp in a certain way, which uh, essentially made an X or a cross. And at the center was the tabernacle and then the Levites. And then you had all the other tribes that would come off of the center of uh, the tabernacle. And then there was the role of the Levites that were explained in chapters 3 to 5. And, and then there were laws about ritual purity from 5 to 10. And then in chapter 10, the cloud of the Lord's presence lifts from the tabernacle. And the people of Israel follow the cloud to travel to the, to the wilderness of Paran. And the Israelites are instructed to follow a cloud. So it's very simple. Where the cloud goes, you go. But the things begin to go wrong very quickly. The Israelites begin to complain. They complain about the hardships of the journey, verse 1 of chapter 11. They complain about the variety, the lack of variety of food in verse 4 of chapter 11. Moses, uh, in chapter 12, Moses' own relatives, Miriam and Aaron, begin to criticize his wife who was a foreigner. And then the journey has gone off to a terrible start. And in chapter 13, Moses uh, chooses 12 men to go into the promised land to explore the land. And he gives them instructions to see what the military ability of the occupying nation is and also to observe the agricultural fruitfulness and potential of the land. And so they go in. They explore and those 12 men come back. And 10 of them, 
out of the 12 are absolutely sure that they will be defeated if they go into the land. It's a bad idea. We shouldn't go. And guess what happens? The people are brought up into an uproar. There's more complaining that ensues. And they begin to say things like, hey, if only we had died in Egypt or, or even in the wilderness, that would be better than going into this land to be killed. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only for us to die in battle? Our families will be carried off. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Let's find a new leader. They found their hope as being to go back to Egypt. What actually could bring them true security in their eyes was Egypt and not the Lord. So God, of course, is understandably angry. Yet Moses intercedes for his people on the basis of the covenant that God made with his people. God, these are your people. Please do not destroy them. And so God grants to the people what they really wanted, not to go into the promised land. And for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. And this first generation is not permitted to go in the land and they die. So finally, in Numbers 20, the second generation comes to leadership and they are ready to travel out of the wilderness of Paran. And they're ready to go to the promised land. And so in their travels, things become bumpy again. They quickly get to a spot and they're thirsty. They have no water and and they complain. This is Numbers chapter 20, verses two to five. And so Moses goes to the rock. He's told what to do, to speak to the rock, but instead he actually takes his staff and he strikes the rock out of anger. And Moses doesn't honor the Lord. Instead, Moses is actually not able to go into the wilderness. Uh, He's not able to go into the promised land just like the generation that didn't trust and obey the Lord. And so they're on their travels again and they come to a place called Edom. And if they cross Edom, they'll walk right in the promised land. But they go to the king of Eden and say, Edom, can we cross your land? And he says, no, I don't want you all this huge group of people to cross my land. And so what do the Israelites do? They travel around Edom to go to the promised land. And we come to Numbers chapter 21, and this is part of the journey where they are. They're, they're probably a third of the way through that journey going around Edom. And here they are, and the people are discouraged. We find very quickly in verse 4 that the people are incredibly discouraged. The the text says the people became impatient on the way. Why why would they be discouraged? Well, the heat probably during this time of year was excruciating. The, The journey, the terrain was very rough. I don't know about you, but if there's a pothole on I-85, I complain. But there were more than just potholes as they were traveling. This was terrible, terrible conditions. Not only that, but the direction of the travel was, seemed to be wrong. They were going away from the promised land. Actually, they were heading towards Egypt and they were going to do this U around Edom. 
And so to someone who is just tagging along in the caravan, this seems totally the wrong way to go. God, what are you doing? I want to be done following the cloud. Well, these were real hardships. They were real challenges. Sometimes as Christians, we can come to a challenge in our lives and we can kind of overlook it and be like, well, it's not that big of a deal. No, these were actually real challenges. And what was induced was these people became discouraged. It's this sorrowful impatience that the difficulties will not abate. And so let me ask you this question. How do we deal with discouragement as believers? I believe Dana Ortland in a... In a an article that he wrote, uh, um, a pastor uh, wrote these two ways that actually we have the, the, the potential to che- ch- uh, choose or deal with discouragement. One is we could gradually grow cynical by allowing the discouragements of life to beat out any sense of eternal destiny and wonder that God gave us at conversion. We grow in cynicism in the midst of our discouragement. Or we could do this. We can leverage these discouragements of life to enter into a deeper reality with God and the truths that we confess. So we have two opportunities in the moment of discouragement. And guess what the Israelites choose? They chose the path of cynicism. And it's imperative for us to know that when discouragements of life hit the fan, we have this choice to respond. Either we can look to heaven and say, oh God, the hardship, the trial, the difficulty is so heavy on my soul, but you are my God. I will trust in you. You are the shepherd that will never leave me nor forsake me. It is possible to be faith-filled, to have a faith-filled response. Or we can act as if God is not in the situation at all. We can grow anxious because it all depends on us to figure out the answer. We grow cynical because we feel like others don't understand. We can complain because there's nothing to be thankful for. We can be filled with regret because we wish that we could go back and change it all. This response requires no faith. It's your heart and It's what my heart naturally want to do. So maybe you're here today thinking, well, Ben, I I actually really don't get discouraged. I'm actually really great. My life's good. You know, I I don't really, you know, struggle with discouragement. And maybe you're in that moment. And I want to respond to you as Charles Spurgeon responded to the same sentiment. He said this, dear brother, Be thankful that you do not be discouraged. But let me warn you not to judge others. If you are like great bullocks, oxen full of strength, do not get pushing with horn and shoulder those who happen to be the weak cattle. For the Lord takes note of the haughty looks and proud words. 
He goes on to say this, this I do know, both by observation and experience, that there are many true pilgrims who will enter the king's country triumphantly at the last, who nevertheless are occasionally much discouraged because of the way. So the discouragement of our life, even you may battle that discouragement in your life as you leverage that to know Jesus, does not define the final destiny of where you will enter into glory. But you will walk faithfully and look to Christ in the midst of your discouragement. Maybe you find yourself very discouraged today. May I urge you to rest in the gospel, rest and look to the example of Israel as a warning. A warning to flee from cynicism and look to the cross of Christ. And so what happened to the Israelites? They had discouraging circumstances, but the discouragement turned sour. The discouragement turned sour. How do we know this? Look at what Moses wrote about the situation and what they said. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, but we loathe this worthless food. We know that this discouragement had turned sour in their hearts by what they thought about others and what they said. Their, Their comments revealed an evil presumption about God and Moses' character and motives. Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Their comments revealed that they were led by their motives and not truth. It wasn't true that God led them to die. Actually, God brought them out of Egypt to live, to have life, to enjoy the promised land. It's easy in the midst of discouragement to believe things that aren't true. Their comments were filled with complaining and harsh criticism as they expressed ungrateful dissatisfaction to Moses and God for the food that they've been given. The psalmists many times describe manna as bread from heaven and imagine describing the bread of heaven as worthless. What is vital for us to remember Uh, excuse me, their comments demonstrated a hopelessness. Why have you brought us out to Egypt to die? They saw their only option left was to die. The Israelites' discouragement had turned unnecessarily sour. It's easy to think that complaining doesn't hurt anyone. We think that we complain to our spouse, we complain to our kids, we complain to our coworkers, we complain actually just in our minds about the events of life, and we don't think it's a big deal, it's not hurting anyone. But complaining always is the statement of what you believe about a circumstance and what you believe about God. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine with me that you are around your uh, family dinner table and it's been a very, very busy day. Dad, you've been super busy at work. Mom, you've had to work and you've run errands and you both got got home quickly, as fast as you could, 
to make supper. And maybe this is your life every single weekday. And the meal, it's spread on the table and there's some chicken, there's some rice and there's some veggies. And you call your son down for dinner and he comes down, he sits at the table and he says this, I can't believe I came home for this meal. This is terrible. I should have just stayed in town and ate supper at McDonald's. This is worthless. Well, what would, what would happen in your house? I know if I did that as a child, teenager coming home, did that to my parents, my dad would, would calmly lay down his fork. He would be very measured in his response to me. And he would ask me a very direct question. Son, do you want to die? <laughs> My mother would chime in, says, no, I'm going to kill him. I brought you into this world. I'm going to take you out, son. You're dead. Why would their reactions be so strong to a comment of his observation, how he thought about the circumstance? Well, it was because it wasn't just about the food. No, it's because his mom and dad worked hard to earn the money so they could buy the food, to bring home the food, to prepare the food. And the remarks weren't just about the food. The comments were about the provider of the food. You didn't make what I really wanted. You could have done better. I could have done better for myself. Israel's comments about the food and the journey are wrong and sinful because they are comments and complaints about who is providing the food and who is leading the people. And what is vital to remember, even in our complaints, and we're going to see with the Israelites that the wages of sin is death. Just as it was death for the older generation, it will be death for this generation. And so the Lord hears their comments and he immediately sends a punishment. So the Lord, the third observation from this text is that the Lord judges sin. How, how does the Lord judge the sin? Well, the Lord sends fiery serpents into the camp among the people. These fiery serpents refer to the look and the brilliance of the serpent. I'm sure they were, they were probably red in some ways, but, but also they're fiery due to the, the way the snake bit into the person. And there was immense pain that would have been brought to the individual. It was a fiery pain and it was death that was imminent. There's always a price to pay for sin. But the righteous judge is merciful to his people. It's interesting that, that the people knew the serpent was a consequence of sin. They came to Moses and they said, they said, we've sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, Moses, so that he takes away the serpents from us. The people go to Moses and ask him to intercede for them. They admit they sinned before a holy, righteous God they have, that, that who would sovereignly give them all good things and they turn from that sin to following the Lord. What do we call this? 
This is repentance. They recognize that actually what they did was a great, great offense to God. And so God, in his mercy, sends a way of escape. God, in his mercy, sends a provision. And so what does he say to Moses in verses 8 and 9? Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Imagine with me, again, imagine with me, go, go as if you were actually traveling with the Israelites. And imagine if you are traveling with a nation and, and you're, you're traveling in the hot and dry desert. And in this story, just imagine with me, that your mother-in-law is one of the biggest complainers out there. And actually, she decides that she is going to go and pick it outside of Moses' tent. And her favorite signs that she brings to pick it outside of Moses' tent is no water, no marching. Another one she loves is, is bread of heaven stinks. And, and so she is picketing. And, and, and one morning you begin to hear terrible screams echoing throughout the camp. And they're reminiscent of what your parents told you that Egypt was like when those ten plagues struck the land. It was shrilling. It was, it was uh, mournful. It was terrible. And so you look out your tent. You stand in the midst of a way, that, uh, of a road, and you look up and down, and you see snakes. You see people be, uh, being bit, and you see people dying. The camp has been completely overtaken by snakes. And behind, your terror, your, your, uh, uh, behind you, you hear a terrifying scream. It's the unmistakable scream of your mother-in-law, and she's yelling about a snake in the tent. And you quickly run into her tent, and, and before you could get in there, you realize she too has been bitten. From years of being in the desert, undoubtedly there would be treatments, medicinal treatments for snake bites. And people get to go around and say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing to try to uh, stop the, 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 the problem, the venom? And, and, and people, you know, maybe you, you run and you get all the essential oils out of your tent and you, you start splashing everything you know on them. And, and, and before long, you realize nothing is working. And you, you know, you, you go to other people and you say, what's worked for you? And they say, nothing. People who've been bit will die. But then before long, you begin to hear that in the middle of the camp, people are being healed. And you don't know how people are being healed. You don't know what is causing this healing, but you say, hey, we'll do anything we can to bring healing. And so you, you grab your mother-in-law and, and your wife and, and your family. You all grab your mother-in-law and you, you begin to run to the center of the camp and you get to the center of the camp and, and, and you see a man as you're a distance away and he's holding a pole and, and on that pole there's this, 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 it looks like a serpent. 
And you get closer and, and you begin to ask people, hey, how do I be healed? What do we do? Like, wh- wh- what's, the, what's the secret sauce? How, what brings healing? And, and people are, it's, it's chaos. And people are, are quickly, they, they say, well, well, you look at that, that bronze serpent, it's not real. It's, it's, it's not real. It's a bronze serpent. Moses made it. And, and, and actually, it's, it's got no venom. But, but if you just look at it and you believe that that is the way provided, that you'll be healed. And guess who's holding the pole? It's Moses. And so you explain to your mother, to, to, to mother-in-law, to look at the pole. If you just look at the pole, then, then you'll be healed. But, but she is bitter. She looks at the man that's holding that pole and says, no, that man led us in the wrong spot. He shouldn't have brought us to the desert. This is all his fault. And the bitterness in her heart was welling up and she would not look to the pole. She would not look to the serpent. And she began to say things like, well, if, if we were in Egypt, we, this wouldn't have happened. We would have great food. The weather's too hot. This wasn't my fault. It, it, it just happened this way. He was a bad leader. And the more expu- excuses she gives, the weaker she becomes. Until you give her one final plea and say, please look to the serpent and you will live. By faith, look and live. And she lifts her head looks at the serpent with faith-filled gaze, believing that she could be healed. Instead of the venom coursing through her veins, life now flows, and she immediately realizes she has been healed. What, what an incredible event to watch this happen. But this story has a much greater meaning there will be another that will be lifted up. And in fact, this story symbolizes an event that will take place uh, thousands of years later, but actually will have greater, far greater repercussions. And we find this story as Jesus is in conversation with, with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a, a rich, old, religious Man of the Sanhedrin, he probably came to Jesus. This is John chapter three. He probably came to Jesus to politic and say, hey, we can help you and you can help us. And Jesus said to him, no, 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 you must be born again. Oh no, your religiosity actually doesn't help you. Your means of being healed won't help you. Actually, you've got to start all the way over and be born again. And then Jesus gives this illustration. He looks back all the way to Numbers 21, and he says, just like this serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so too will the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, two other times in the book of John, Nicodemus is mentioned. And the third time that Nicodemus is mentioned in the book is actually after Christ has been crucified. And who goes gets the body of Christ? It's Nicodemus. 
And what typically was, was uh, the, the job of women to embalm the body, actually Nicodemus said, no, no I, I want to do that job. And he goes and he embalms the body of Jesus. Oh, the very thing that Jesus said was going to happen, happened. He looked and he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross and it all made sense to him. I have to be born again. This is the Messiah. Nicodemus believed. He realized there was no other way to come to God except through Jesus Christ. You know, Christ points all the way back to this obscure Old Testament passage. And there are three Christ connects I want us to make this morning. First of all, Christ died because all have sinned. Christ died because all have sinned. The serpent was lifted up because some complained and then some were bitten. Only if you were bitten did you need the serpent on the pole? However, Christ is being lifted up for the entire human race because you and I, we've been all inflicted by the venom of sin that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three when the the, the serpent was in the garden and tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And there they sinned. And ever since that moment, you and I have been, have been aimlessly wandering around trying to find our own way to God. And Jesus says, I am the only way. I have died for you. And so this morning, every one of us, we are all alike in our need for a Savior. The man, Nicodemus, of all people, he didn't need a savior. I mean, he was in the Sanhedrin. He was super religious. He kept the law better than everyone else. Of course, he didn't need a savior. No, he did. He, he too. He needed to be born again. So the second Christ connection is this. Christ was fully man, yet bore no sin. The serpent that was put up on the pole looked like a real serpent. It had the, the look and shape and, and, and Moses crafted this serpent. Yet it bore no venom as the serpents on the ground that were biting people. Similarly, Christ possessed all the human realities and limitations of having put on flesh of human And yet he bore no sin. And it speaks to the reality that we need a perfect substitute on the cross. And Jesus, who knew no sin, but became sin for us. The righteous died for the unrighteous. And thirdly, Christ was cursed for us so that we might have life. In Israel's law, it was strictly stated that anyone who hung on the cross was cursed in the sight of God. The serpent had already been cursed of God from Genesis as it now slithers on its belly. But Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, hung on the tree, was cursed by God for us 
so that you and I might have life. He took the brunt of all of God's wrath so that the love of God might be poured out on you. So what does this mean for us? Two applications. It would, I would be remiss if I did not ask this question. Maybe this morning you have never looked to Christ. You, you've actually never believed the gospel. You've maybe heard this your whole life, but actually you're, you're very much like Nicodemus. This someone who's heard the gospel and heard truths and, and been in church for many years, but actually you're realizing I've never looked to Jesus as my hope for salvation. It has all been about rules and, and standards and, and the attempt to make myself glorious, but actually I'm realizing this morning it is only Jesus that can make me glorious in the sight of God. And this morning, I need to be saved. Will you come and talk to a pastor afterwards? We would love to share the gospel with you so that you know you can be saved. But maybe, Christian, you're here this morning, and just as I began about blurred spiritual vision, maybe you too, your spiritual vision has been blurred. And actually, your sight is not on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not on the cross, but it's on all the, the, the events of this world, all the, the circumstances happening, the, the news, the, the events in your life, all, just all the, the trials and troubles of life have become your pure focus, your full focus. Well, could I urge you, look to the cross and live. We, we should all be saying, I need the gospel every day. I need the gospel every day as much as I needed it the day I met Jesus. And Colossians chapter 2, verse 5 actually says that. It says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. What, what was the moment you started walking with Christ is the very thing that continues you to walk with Christ. And what is that? It is faith. You look to Christ and said, you're the only way I can come to God. Forgive me. Save me. But so often we wander off to another path of maybe rules and regulations. And if I just do this enough, that will make me a better person. But, but truly, the only mindset for us can be the cross, can be the gospel. Why? Let me give you four brief illustrations. Why the cross and the gospel is our own, only way to look th through the lens of life. You know, it's easy for a mom to look at other parents, maybe a dad too, and see how well-behaved their kids are. Instead of looking to Christ and realizing the parent's role is to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ to their kids and looking to the cross and actually seeing the grace of Jesus Christ saying, oh Lord, may this child grow to know you and love you with all their hearts and not just be, I, I don't want to be embarrassed when they misbehave. The gospel changes our way of parenting. 
Or maybe it's easy for a dad to look and wonder how they're going to make ends meet. And anxiously, they're wondering and, and the anxiety builds every day. And they feel like, oh, should I take more overtime? Should I do this? Should I, what should I do here? What, how do I make all this work? But, but truly, the answer is looking to Christ. Because he says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. It's easy for single parents to think that they've been forgotten. But Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's easy for those who've been hurt to build up walls so they will never be hurt again and and say, no, I'm not going to be hurt again. This wall is built up so I will make sure that, that I'll never feel those feelings again. But we remember that Jesus had served others and suffered to the point of his own death. See how the gospel begins to change our, our mindset about all of life? And so is it really that simple? Just look to the cross. Look to the gospel. Look to Christ. It is. And so I began this morning with a story about my inability to see. My eyesight was terrible. And so without corrective lenses, I was unable to focus. In order to see correctly the events and circumstances of life, we need to have a corrective focus too. And the only way that comes is to be united with Jesus Christ. And he did this through the cross. And this story, this, this story about Israel and, and the bronze serpent just, just opens our eyes to what Christ did for you and I on the cross. And so, my friend, this, the plea is very simple. It's this. By faith, look to the cross and live.